This is Public Occurrences, both foreign and domestic. And now your host, Michael O'Fallon. up this morning and first flicked through Twitter, you undoubtedly viewed the World Economic Forum's Klaus Schwab introducing the leader of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping, to open his virtual summit from Davos. And as so many have asked me over the past few years, what does the World Economic Forum and all the United Corporations for One World Digitization, you know, companies like BlackRock, Vanguard, General Motors, Pfizer, Marriott, Toyota, UPS, Verizon, PayPal, Amazon, Lippo Group, the Coca-Cola Company, Visa, Walmart, Western Union, and hundreds and hundreds of other corporations and non-governmental organizations, what in the world do they have to do with communist China? I mean, if China is communist, why are they all involved with all these big businesses and corporations? I mean, if you're old enough to remember the old Soviet Union of Russia and Eastern Europe, you know what we called the Iron Curtain, you will remember that we didn't have millions of tourists with money in their hands ready to spend on trips to New York City and San Francisco. You didn't have hotels in London, Paris, and Geneva filled to the brim with eager purchasing Russian Soviets. But for about a 10-year period, really from around 2009 to 2019, you did with China. In fact, the Chinese tourist market completely revolutionized the travel industry, changing it forever. Entire hotels were either bought or built in areas of Switzerland for the hundreds and thousands of Chinese tourists. Entire cruise lines and cruise industries began to change the way that they operate, where they go, the way that they do their food for the fact that they had now hundreds and hundreds of thousands of new Chinese tourists wanting to sail on board. The beautiful city of Lucerne, Switzerland, was daily inundated with Chinese tourists. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands making up the major population, literally turning Lucerne into a Chinese-dominant city on a daily basis. With lines of Chinese tourists standing outside of the certified Rolex and Patek Philippe stores, I mean, you would see 10, 20, 30 people in line outside of the store waiting to come in to buy watches that were valued anywhere from $20,000 to $100,000. And they were all Chinese. And if you were to visit China, and if you were to take the high-speed train into the center of the Shanghai Bund with me, You would be enveloped in a world of glittering five-star hotels, Bugattis and Bentleys, traveling through the streets and Michelin-level restaurants serving the finest cuisine on the planet. So we're not talking about Marxist-styled communism here. We're talking about a nation that still has the Communist Party apparatus in place, but is also producing billionaires at a record pace. Billionaires who are loyal to the central government of China. Billionaires who are buying up essential corporations, real estate, and essential businesses in the United States. Businesses that they're buying, the Chinese are buying, that maybe handle meat processing, food distribution, pharmaceuticals, and other necessary elements to a working and thriving United States. Yes, we've allowed this to happen. 
Now, the roots of this change go back to the involvement of American business interests from men such as David Rockefeller and the interstitial involvement of globally motivated politicians and strategists like Henry Kissinger and Zbigniew Brzezinski. These Americans would provide the ideas and seeds of development into the quickly eroding Mao power base and into the new post-cultural revolution hegemony of Deng Xiaoping. Now, if you remember, Deng Xiaoping would famously say, quote, I don't care if it's a black cat or a white cat as long as that cat catches mice. So he was a pragmatist. And the great idea, the concept that Americans sold the Chinese on was a mix of fascism and communism, sort of a communo-fascism, but fascism at the very heart of the economic model that would, decades down the road, lead to the Marxist dream of a world without work, a totalitarian fascism that would demand obedience and collectivism from the new global citizens, an autocracy, a communo-fascist China that would soon turn imperialistic, And this is why the World Economic Forum is partnering as frenemies with China. They are building two belt roads, a neo-colonial belt from China to Asia, the Middle East, Africa, and now suddenly in the Caribbean, and the other belt road in Europe, North America, and West Asia. So when Klaus Schwab invited Xi Jinping to begin his digital forum at the World Economic Forum this morning, if you wanted to understand what Chairman Xi Jinping was saying in context, you have to understand that both the hegemonic communo-fascist government of China and the now enviro-communo-fascist public-private partnership of the World Economic Forum, well, you have to understand they have the same goals, one world order. And so when you listen to the World Economic Forum's digital symposium and hear Xi Jinping say, quote, we cannot be 190 separate boats all trying to separately battle challenges and disruptions, but instead we must become one big ship, end quote. Understand that what Xi is saying is that we must become one big global supranation with Xi, Schwab, and a few handpicked technocrats at the helm. That's why you have right now in progressive evangelical reform Christianity, this battle against nationalism and nationism. That's why you have this going on in the press. And when Xi warns the audience at the World Economic Forum that, quote, if formerly capitalist nations slam on the brakes, end quote, from transitioning into communist fascist nations like China, there will be serious negative consequences. You must keep going. You must go all the way. You can't stop now. You must continue to pursue one world communo-fascism. And when you understand that both Xi and Schwab are warning the nations of the world that this vaxxed push into a global citizen, global vaxxed passport, global social credit system must continue or else. And so when you look at those who are part of this Davos and China cabal, which would be the companies like General Motors, Amazon, Walmart, Toyota, PayPal, Salesforce, Disney, BlackRock, Vanguard, and all the companies that are manipulated by BlackRock, Vanguard, like Carnival Corporation, the major airlines, and the oil and gas companies, know that these people have capitulated, these corporations. They have surrendered our nation, our way of life, over to the cult of enviro-communo-fascism. And we're about ready to be completely plunged into the ESG system. And they are as well capitulating to China. It goes hand in hand. 
Now, in an article by Sam Hudson, which I'm going to interact with, he states the following. So the roots of China's descent into fascism can be traced back to Deng Xiaoping's ascent to power and economic reforms that openly rejected central planning in favor of market-based economics. And these forms were instrumental in not only achieving China's rapid economic growth, but also in ensuring a place on the world stage through opening up the country to global markets. If you recall, by the way, if you're someone who's maybe over the age of 40, you remember that most of the things that we bought, most of the things that we had that were plastic and rubber and so forth that were mass produced, were produced in either Taiwan or Hong Kong. Well, that changed when Deng Xiaoping's revolution took place, along with the Americans that helped him. And so on the surface, these reforms relinquished state power over the economy, but by allowing private enterprise, they laid the foundations for an economy similar to those found in the fascist countries of the 1930s and 40s of Central Europe. Now, as shown by Chinese treatment of billionaire Jack Ma and Alibaba, the Chinese state wields enormous power over businesses to help further cement its grip over the entire population and the businesses that exist within China. A core facet of fascism is the weaponization of capitalism to further the authority and interests of the government. That's why we are moving, folks, to a stakeholder capitalist model. It is not really pure capitalism. It is a weapon that can be wielded against those that it wishes to disfavor. It also can be used as a solve for those that it wishes to favor. Now, as opposed to Soviet-style centrally planned economics, fascists are quite content with the development of private monopolies, let's say, and the conglomeration of private businesses enriching their owners, as long as it is in the interests of the government to do so. The tolerance of the Zaibatsu by the Imperial Japanese militaristic government and the Nazis' open support of powerful monopolies in Germany, such as Volkswagen, IG Farben, Krupp, pay testament to this. But China's economy is far closer to this form of fascistic weaponized capitalism, tolerating powerful monopolies such as Huawei, as long as they continue to silently pledge to the party than it is to market-reformed Soviet Union along the lines of, let's say, Gorbachev's perestroika, if you remember that. If Dengism laid the economic roots for the development of Chinese fascism, it is Xi Jinping that allowed it to blossom. So in 1995, Umberto Eco provided one of the most comprehensive definitions of fascism in his essay, Er Fascism. And so this is the second time that I'll be quoting Umberto Eco in the last two podcasts. But by looking at China's adherence to the properties that were laid out in his essay, we can quickly see that the Chinese government is at heart fascist in a totalitarian form of fascism at that. The first property of Ur fascism, a syncretic cult of tradition, was embraced by Xi Jinping at the start of his rule and has only strengthened since. So President Xi's Promotion of traditional Confucianism blended with socialistic rhetoric flies in the face of Mao's infamous cultural revolution that sought to end traditionalist thinking and values in China and shows a clear departure from the authoritarian system of socialism and Marxism, more in a Gramscious sense, as imposed by Mao. So 
understand that Xi also understands that that old system did not work and was destructive. Wouldn't it be great to use that system against your enemies, ideologically? But much like the myth of Italy or the Aryanist myth of Germany, this cult of tradition reforges China's national myth to hark back to a mythic, great imperial past. So before Xi, China's myth was characterized by a common revolutionary narrative that celebrated the triumph of the worker and the peasant over the systems of capitalistic oppression. This national myth has since become irrelevant, really. It's been discarded, and it's unrelatable to many, as China's middle class has burgeoned, forcing a transition to a new one. In fact, appealing to a frustrated middle class is Echo's sixth property of er-fascism. So, very similar to Japanese ultranationalism, Chinese fascism itself endangers feelings of frustration in an otherwise content middle class by weaving an element of political humiliation into its own myth that it seeks to then solve. Like Japan's Asia for Asians myth, the new national myth proposes that China's historical greatness was unjustly undermined by the imperialist slights of European powers through China's century of humiliation. And that expansionist and imperialist foreign policy is justified by righting historical wrongs. So in many ways, what China is doing now is global social justice against the West. In the eyes of the Chinese fascist, until all these historical wrongs are righted, China's humiliation continues and national rejuvenation Xi Jinping's ultimate goal, cannot be achieved. The framework explains China's eagerness to reclaim and integrate historical core territories such as Hong Kong and Taiwan, with disregard for international ramifications. So in China, disagreement with the government and the national myth becomes treasonous by virtue of extending the century of humiliation. Yet another property of Echo's definition. And so protesters in Hong Kong were smeared by people like Ronnie Chan and others as CIA moles by much of the Chinese media, because in their eyes, rejecting the government only continues China's humiliation by the West. And therefore, there is no reason why a Chinese citizen will reject the government unless they are disloyal. This is all built on vengeance. The idea of national humiliation that is prolonged and furthered by Western infiltration has led to this idea of an obsession with plot, much like the stab-in-the-back myth of Nazi Germany against what happened with them at the Treaty of Versailles. So this vengeance concept has led to a surge in statist jurists who support an expansive view of state authority in China that prioritizes stability of the Chinese nation above all else. For external threats cannot be properly defended against otherwise. And the Chinese status have been heavily influenced by the work of Carl Schmitt, who was Hitler's crown jurist, who articulated very similar views that sought to defend against a supposed plot against the German state and people. So this has justified dystopian surveillance infrastructure and methods in China 
such as the social credit system. And this is in addition to the ongoing persecution and genocide of minorities, such as the Uyghurs. So, in the eyes of the Chinese, national security must be prioritized above all else. So, pulling back the red veneer of China's government lays bare a dark reality. The world's second superpower is a totalitarian fascist one. We can no longer treat China as a remnant of the Cold War, the Soviet Union that could have been. The policy of Chinese national rejuvenation is setting China on a collision course between America and itself. Because the goals of the Chinese government cannot be achieved without significant concessions that would significantly diminish America's global standing. America may pursue its own imperial agenda, but it is certainly the preferable superpower to China, given its somewhat flawed yet broadly democratic institutions, almost like the Napoleonic Code. Now, my former client, Ronnie Chan, would talk about Thucydides' trap and how we are on an inevitable road to war, unless we, of course, equalize things behind the scenes. But war is not an inevitability, and fascist domination can still be countered. After all, America still, to some extent in terms of equipment, overshadows China when it comes to global power in terms of military strength. But now, through this whole idea of vengeance and this idea, of course, of national rejuvenation on the part of China, seeking, if you will, reparations for wrongs in the past, maybe now you can start to understand what happened in Afghanistan and why we left billions of dollars of equipment behind for the Afghanis. But that military that we have in the United States, which is now replete with dancing female soldiers and effeminate security force operators, does face a challenge from what now is a steroidal male Chinese army. But we can't continue to delude ourselves that China is somehow an amicable business partner in pursuit of mutual benefit. The current Chinese government has the same mentality of the Nazi party and Adolf Hitler of the 1930s. They want vengeance against the West. They feel as if they were slighted by the West for over 100 years. And they will build and invade both digitally and physically to dominate the world. Their Chinese rejuvenation comes only through the disrupting and dismantling of America. I'm Michael O'Fallon. And this has been Public Occurrences, both foreign and domestic.